Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, Beat Check listeners. I'm Gosia Wozniacka, and I'm the environmental justice reporter at The Oregonian. Today, I'm with Vivek Shandas, a professor at Portland State University in the Geography Department. Uh, Vivek Shandas studies the impact that climate change has on our cities, and he figures out what strategies cities can use to reduce those impacts. And today, we're going to talk about one aspect of climate change that cities urgently need to address, which is extreme heat. So let's get started. Welcome to the show, Vivek. Hi, Gosia. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, so as all we have all noticed in recent years, climate change is very much a reality that it impacts us personally. Hot days are getting hotter, more frequent in Oregon and elsewhere. And I wanted to sort of step back at the beginning of our conversation and ask you why uh, you got interested in studying extreme heat and other climate impacts. It's kind of a depressing topic. Yeah, it it can be depressing, though, you know, communities have been living with uh, extreme heat for um, centuries and millennia. And in fact, it's the temperature that really allowed our species, at least best archaeological evidence, to really move and travel across the planet. And um, as a species that has been very sensitized to uh, hots and colds, we can live in places for a long time. And my family grew up in the eight degrees above the equator. And that's where we can trace at least my family back hundreds and hundreds of years. And part of um, my reckoning with heat was going back and visiting my family regularly um, in South India and noticing that my experience of temperatures just got warmer and warmer and warmer. It was a very personal realization um, that mangoes were ripening earlier and lots of the kinds of Um, activities that had been done for hundreds of years were actually shifting. So human and social uh, practices were shifting, not only the picking of mangoes and kind of the pickles and all the things we make as a result of um, some of the fruits and vegetables, but my interest really got piqued when I started seeing these direct changes happening right in front of me. And I think that's what a lot of communities are experiencing now as temperatures continue to rise. Got it. So you were seeing these changes in South India, uh, where your family was from, um, and you were noticing that it was getting even more hot, even hotter than than it was before. Right, right. And just as I was visiting, I was hearing congressional testimony by folks like James Hansen, who focused on heat waves when he spoke to Congress in 1988 and talked about how that these heat waves are going to get more intense and more frequent and in longer duration. And the climate models that were developed, even as um, as less sophisticated that as they were in the 80s and 70s, and they've only improved in their accuracy and predictability, uh, even those early models were indicating that heat was going to become a much more um, acute issue for human health and well-being. Got it. And now we're we're here. Um, yeah, it's our reality. Uh, and. You know, we live in Portland, which is a large city, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why extreme heat is of a particular concern to cities like Portland. Uh, why should our 
you know, leaders, our residents be concerned about this? And are we more at risk in a city? Yeah. So as an urban geographer, I'm really interested in place. And um, I finished my PhD at a time when it was considered the uh, century of the city or the urban century. And I uh, actually got my PhD in a field called urban ecology, and it was the study of cities. So the whole argument while I was going through school in the late 90s and early aughts was that you know, cities are a place that converge infrastructure, that, ha that have a lot of people and, of course, have ecosystems. And we talked about cities and we still talk about cities as human dominated landscapes. So places where humans are just the predominant and do predominant species that kind of can make water go uphill, can really transform the landscape, can make uh, uh, wells from what you can make valleys from what used to be mountains and can make mountains out of what used to be valleys. Humans are very uh, fastidious in their ability to really transform the landscape. And this was a really uh, big moment because in 2007, the majority of people uh, globally are now living in cities. And that was a big transition because humans as a species live predominantly in areas that had very few people. I mean, you'd have to go a good kilometer, a mile, if not more, to be able to find another uh, house. And people lived on these and that's for the majority of human history. We moved from place to place. There were groups of maybe, you know, 10,000-ish, maybe upwards of uh, 30,000, some archaeological evidence would suggest. But we weren't up at million, 10 million people in one place. So this urban century really cast out uh, this idea that, you know, this is an unexplored way of humans living on the planet, these cities and these kind of ways we're developing. And we don't really know a lot about them. We know that we can build them, we can design structures for people to live for a long time. And um, we had a lot of literature coming out about how terrible cities were, how they polluted, how they were really kind of uh, uh, crime ridden, how um, you don't get kind of pure and morally kind of uh, uh, heightened uh, behaviors in cities. And so we really saw cities as a complex amalgam of infrastructure, social practices, policies, economics, um, and culture as uh, a way of trying to uh, live sustainably into the future. And so this was what really got me interested in cities is that we had never embarked on an experiment like this as a species. And it does really matter um, kind of how we build these cities. Historically, cities were built with big walls around them and, it, you know, there were uh, uh, invading armies and the threats on cities were very different uh, 500 years ago than they are today. And so what has got me more interested in thinking about heat as a, as a topic is that this is a new threat that cities have really not grappled with uh, in the recent history. Uh, though if you take it back a thousand or two thousand years, there are many cities right in the Middle East, for example, uh, that were consistently seeing 90, 100 degree days and finding ways to design around that. So um, mm -hmm. There are some examples, if you take it back far enough, but our modern city is really lacking any kind of real attention to managing heat. And that's where I'm really interested in taking some of the conversation. Mm -hmm. and, and what have you seen so far? I mean, from your studies, uh, what, what are sort of the, the, the things that put cities more at risk uh, from extreme heat events? Yeah, you know, we've been characterizing risk in so many different fields in terms of infrastructure, in terms of kind of um, contractability of diseases and things like that. But with heat, it's one of these silent killers that really we don't know how it kind of finds its way 
to affect human bodies. We go inside when it's hot often, uh, unless we're houseless and we have to kind of bear the brunt of the heat outside. Um, and so part of what we're finding is that there is a really big difference in temperatures across a metropolitan region. We've done this over the last decade and showing that there are temperatures kind of that vary upwards of 20 degrees Fahrenheit from one part of the city to another at the same hour. And that's no coincidence. There's lots of reasons for that, and we can get into that. But I really am seeing that the, ex the, the measurement of temperature we've been able to do, though the understanding of how those hotter temperatures are affecting uh, humans and communities is a little bit more tricky. That's the whole area of exposure studies that we're trying to get at. Um, and, you know, you can be in a really hot part of a city, but you can have air conditioning inside and be just fine and bare through a heat wave, no problem. But you're in another part of the city that's also hot with no access to AC or other um, cooling systems, such as trees or parks nearby, then you're going to face very different reality. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to unpack a couple of the things that you said. Uh, so... The fact that temperatures vary around the city, uh, which means some communities are getting hotter and others less hot. Why is that? Let's talk about why. Sure. There's just really two reasons, and it has to do with policy uh, and and infrastructure. Um, the policy side of it is that we can we fin we published a study in 2020 that was that really kind of answered a fundamental question of. Uh, why do we see these heat differences? We were able to show across 108 cities in the United States that um, a neighborhood is hotter consistently because it was planned in a way where it was segregated and disinvested in over generations. And from, the, for example, from 1930 to uh, 1968, just over 30-ish years, uh, the Federal Housing uh, Authority um, um, and the Homeowners Loan Corporation basically codified a uh, segregation policy that said some neighborhoods would receive uh, mortgage insurance and uh, bill, and so communities living in these what were called green-lined areas were supported with parks and with um, with smaller homes and with lots of space between homes and with um, smaller roads and while other areas were uh, that were considered uh, hazardous were uh, were uh, redlined, and those were um, largely disinvested in, where they didn't get the parks. They didn't. They got lots of large industrial facilities, uh, freeways, um, etc. And so that segregation policy, going back almost a century, we were able to show that these uh, areas that were invested in, those A grade areas, if you will, and the D grade areas, those were. Um, uh, averaged in temperature difference about five degrees um, on average across 108 cities. And Portland turned out to be the hottest of the 108 cities in terms of difference between uh, the uh, red-lined areas and the green-lined areas. And that really is no um, coincidence in a sense because those areas that were red-lined were largely disinvested in and had were redlined in part because there were immigrant communities, low-income communities, communities of color living in those areas. And those policies have cast a long shadow in terms of the impacts they have for current day exposure to not just heat, but we've been able to show urban flooding impacts in those communities as well. And there's other folks who have identified food deserts and higher levels of air pollution in those communities and on down the list it goes. And so part of that's one part of the reason 
uh, is that this this policy and the other is just what that policy has done in terms of infrastructure. We've seen a lot of disinvested areas when the cost benefit analysis is done to be able to get to be able to site a freeway or a big box store or these very land hungry developments. They go right into those locations that are lower land values. And if you're disinvesting in an area of a city, the land values are lowered. And as a result, we see a great deal of these. Uh, very heat retaining infrastructure like parking lots or big box buildings or low slung buildings that are made out of cinder block or brick. They end up in these uh, red line neighborhoods as well as industrial facilities that pollute a great deal of air pollution and they go to those locations, thereby seeing those neighborhoods being a lot hotter. So we see that that's kind of a historical process that's played out. And we see that actually playing out even today where some of the historically disinvested areas are seeing the rapid rise of development, are pushing out green space, are really kind of making it much more, much hotter in those neighborhoods, even in the last uh, couple of decades, well after those redlining policies were abolished in the mid-60s. It strikes me how recent those policies are in a way and how difficult they are to undo. Right. Right. Yeah. And what you mentioned uh, also, I think, goes to answering uh, one of my original questions is why cities are, uh, you know, have pose more risk when it comes to extreme extreme heat. Uh, you mentioned things like uh, uh, warehouses, uh, low low slung buildings, highways, uh, parking lots. Um, those uh, types of buildings uh, and materials uh will respond very differently to extreme heat than uh, a forest or a park, correct? Yeah, yeah. Just from a land uh, composition perspective, so that's w what's on the land uh, question, um, different materials interact with the sun solar radiation in different ways. So, um, for example, when the sun on a hot 90 degree day hits a asphalt surface, black asphalt surface, the darker colors, the more dense materials, holds that heat, retains it until the ambient outside temperature is cooler and then lets that heat go. So what we end up seeing is nighttime temperatures really being amplified during um, in those areas that have a lot more of that asphalt, a lot more of those buildings. And uh, it's kind of baked in, if you will, <laughs> uh, pun intended. And it it's um, whereas areas that are more grassy, uh, treed, um, take in that heat and trees, for example, their leaves, they photosynthesize that uh, sun solar radiation and make sugars out of it with, you know, water and carbon dioxide. And it really is one of those um, very different processes in different materials. And so that as we change materials in our building designs and what have you, we'll likely see very different experiences and of heat. Um, one other piece of that is just uh, configuration of the landscape. So how we build, how we design our buildings, how we design our roads, where the predominant wind is, and trying to enable wind to move through a particular neighborhood really helps in cooling that environment. And we're often kind of sealing off the wind from neighborhoods so that it kind of um, gets the gets that neighborhood. Uh, with a lot less wind and thereby a lot more stagnant air, which then just heats up over time. That's fascinating. Um, you mentioned uh, heat mapping and uh, measuring temperatures uh, around the city. Uh, 
some years ago, you came up with a novel method of uh, measuring and analyzing temperatures in a city. Uh, in the past, from my understanding, uh, measuring temperatures relied mostly on satellite imagery, but uh, you took a different approach and uh, you applied it in Portland and also in many other cities across the U.S. and even uh, in other countries. Can you talk about uh, this heat mapping approach and why it's important? Sure, sure. Largely, uh, it might surprise a lot of listeners that you know, as easy as heat seems to be um, a measuring, it, as easy as it is to measure heat, we've been measuring our own body heat since we were kids with ther thermometers and what have you. It's pretty hard to measure temperature in and around a neighborhood or a whole city. And so part of what has historically been part of it is we have satellites that measure what's called long wave radiation, the, the heat coming off of surfaces. And uh, there's a camera, basically, uh, infrared camera on these uh, uh, satellites that are able to take pictures of the planet and kind of send it back and tell us which neighborhoods are hotter. And what we're do what those are essentially detecting are is a surface. It's a surface temperature, and that gives us kind of uh, an idea of what how hot the roads are, how hot the roof is, how hot the lawns are, driveways, etc. And what we wanted to do is take that kind of heavily technical approach and kind of open it up for more communities to be actively engaged with that. And we spent most of the time over the, uh, from 2010 to 2015, really coming up with a, um, a approach that allowed us to measure ambient temperatures. So that's air temperatures, very different than those surfaces. The surfaces heat up, but there's also cooling of that air as it moves up off the surface. So we got uh, a bunch of people together to go out and collect uh, tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of measurements over a single day. And that allowed us to really create much more high resolution descriptions of heat. And let me back up one second and just say that, you know, when we look at our phones or we look at the temperature forecast or we hear it, that's usually based on one measurement from an airport near uh, an airport near where, uh, the city or the region that you're you're looking at this for. And so part of what that allows you to do is just get a one measurement. One measurement for a whole metro region is probably not super accurate. And so what we wanted to do is just get uh, a much more granular description of heat by measuring tens and hundreds of thousands of measurements every one second. And we hmm. kind of go on by bike or by car. And we do this in the morning for a period of time, afternoon for a period of time, evening for a period of time, and sometimes even in the middle of the night for a period of time to get at a full day profile of how some neighborhoods or some city blocks or some households kind of their, their air temperature increases over the day and sometimes cools down really fast and others that don't cool down very much at all. And then the sun comes up again the next day and continues to kind of store and retain that heat and continue to increase temperatures. So we were able to develop that method um, over that, you know, five to uh, eight years. And then we realized that this is not something that's just happening in Portland or Oregon by any means. This is something that might be playing out around the country. And we mm -hmm. kind of took this to NOAA and said, hey, is this, you know, interesting to you? And they immediately jumped at the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And NOAA is the National Oceanic right. and Atmospheric Administration. Right, a federal agency that's really respond that's in the Department of Commerce, but is really responsible for a lot of the kind of climate and weather data. And the uh, National Weather Center is connected to um, NOAA's office as well. That's right. So it sounds like you've done these uh, heat mapping uh, projects in many different communities now. Right. right. Okay.
Um, and how does it actually work? Where is the uh, where's this uh, temperature sensor uh, attached? Yeah, it's a pretty, we try to make this a community effort. So we're trying to make this not a complicated satellite derived technical uh, emissivity and you know, uh, tech uh, analysis of, of looking at um, a lot of these variables. We just have an on-off switch and it's mounted on a car passenger side window and it allows uh, folks to just basically uh, turn it on. The sensor connects to a GPS uh, global positioning system. Those are the satellites that tell you where you are. Your phone, your smartphone has one. Cars, a lot of cars have them. And it's just a way of knowing where you are in space. So a very geographic kind of uh, measure. Then it tells you, the sensor also tells you how fast you're going. So kind of acceleration, speed, and it tells you also temperature uh, and relative humidity. And with those simple measurements, you can really start characterizing what uh, is um, what is creating the temperature in one in one point in time. And the sensor is very easy to use. And once they once communities go out and collect these uh, measurements, they're able to then um, uh, uh, we're, uh, the the group that actually analyzes it, analyzes these data are able to actually go about and cleaning the data, organizing it, and then creating these maps that show at a 10 meter resolution, so that's about 30 feet uh, a grid cell um, for a whole metro region, every 30 foot, uh, every 30 foot grid uh, has a temperature and a relative humidity uh, measurement, which then also tells you what the heat index is. And we can talk about mm. what the heat index is. It's more kind of what you feel, what it feels like outside rather than just a temperature because it includes humidity as well. Right, the humidity. That's right. That's right. And this uh, mapping is done multiple times per day, right? It's not just a one-time reading. Uh, it's right. done over right. several times. Right. Temperatures change throughout the day. So we want to also control how there's uh, there's a term called thermal drift. So as a area gets warmer, we want to kind of not capture the warming over the time period. We want to catch, capture it right in the early morning. So we do it at 6 a.m. in the morning. So right before the mm -hmm. sun usually uh, starts heating up surfaces or gets gets warm. Then we do it right at the peak of the day, usually around 3 p.m., right as the sun is at its maximum heat. And then we do it in the evening about 7 p.m. so that we start seeing what areas have really absorbed that heat, are retaining it, and then slowly starting to let release it. And so we're able to really capture that multiple times and, and tell you that some areas warm up a lot faster and some areas cool down a lot slower. So it's, it's really interesting to see how the land and the design of the landscape affects those increases and decreases of temperature. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the reason I, I brought this up, and I'm glad that we're discussing this in, in, it in detail, is that uh, Multnomah, Clackamas, and Washington County are right now in the middle of a massive heat mapping project based on this uh, methodology that you uh, have uh, come up with. And uh, they are going to be... Uh, analyzing this uh, data that they, uh, they're collecting and mapping it out. And so I'm wondering what uh, type of uh, results uh, we can uh, expect from this data. Um, what can this data tell us, um, you know, once it's all collected and analyzed? Uh, what, what, can it, what can it tell us as residents uh, of Portland? Well, uh, it'll be pretty quickly, you'll be able to see a map that will describe 
whether you're in one of the relatively hottest areas of town, whether you live in a kind of a moderate temperature, or whether you live in a cooler part of town. So the hottest parts of town usually are, you know, about 20 degrees hotter than the cooler parts of town. And what we've noticed is as temperatures go up, so if we are talking about an 85 degree day versus a 100 degree day versus a 110 degree day, that difference between neighborhoods and between kind of cooler and hotter actually expands as well. So somebody would be able to say, oh, wow, on an 85 degree day, I'm in a neighborhood that's uh, 85 degrees by what the airport would say. I'm in a neighborhood that's actually 92 or 95 degrees. And another person would be able to say, wow, I'm in a neighborhood that's only 80 degrees or 79 degrees. And mm -hmm. as we uh, see a, a 85 degree day go to a 95 degree day, we would see that difference also kind of expanding and growing between these different parts of town. Got it. So if I looked at my phone in the morning and saw, you know, today is going to be a 90 degree day, but I actually know that I live in one of those neighborhoods that's, you know, heats up another five or 10 degrees, I would have to keep that in mind and add, you know, plus five or plus 10 to that, what I'm seeing. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly right. I mean, we, we believe that um, we can handle an 85 degree day, but my neighborhood might actually be a 95 degree neighborhood or city block. And, and that is actually a difference between living um, kind of easily and well versus starting to run into issues of heat stress and our mm -hmm. bodies respond to heat. And since more people die of heat than any other natural hazard uh, every year, we know that it's a very silent killer. We know that it's a very discriminating killer is that somebody living in a hot neighborhood, if they don't have access to cooler environments and they sleep and they go to bed and it's really hot, they're... Um, their body's ability to cool down is compromised. And then we start seeing a lot of those folks not wake up the next day. And that's the thing I'm most concerned about. And the reason why we wanted to get farther and farther precise and more granular, detailed data. Mm -hmm. And this uh, uh, data set that the uh, three counties are collecting, this builds on uh, previous measurements that you've done already um, at Portland State, but this is on a much grander scale, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. The work we did at Portland State was largely around kind of, is this even possible? It's very researchy. It's kind of like we had research funds to see, is the instrumentation av available? Is the kind of process of collecting data? Are the analytics kind of in place for understanding and creating these maps? And that was all kind of basic research uh, funded by folks like the National Science Foundation to see if this is possible. Though when we started seeing some of these results, it really turned into, um, wow, this is something we really need to take out into the community because this has direct policy relevance. And it became a question about uh, all the things like building design, like thinking about what we put on the landscape, how we build, um, ha what materials we use. Like it became much more of a practical question of safeguarding our cities from extreme heat rather than mm -hmm. kind of a research enterprise that's confined to the university. And so that's an important distinction for me because this means that now with um, uh, with public health agencies and uh, planning agencies and sustainability groups directly involved in the counties, we are going to see uh, a very different um, understanding of potential impacts from this and that there's direct ties to policies that these um, practitioners will be able to take as a result of generating all of these data. 
Yeah, and that's one thing I wanted to ask is uh, beyond uh, the mapping uh, where uh, temperatures are higher and lower, uh, what else uh, can uh, this data tell us? Uh, can it analyze risks to particular populations or uh, any other sort of analysis? Yeah, yeah, many, it can go many different directions. In fact, the fact that public health agencies are really championing much of this uh, mapping work this year is very heartening to me because a lot of this work is to kind of safeguard communities and public community health. Um, and so part of what policy makers and public health practitioners will be able to do is really identify um, we don't have a, we don't have unlimited resources to put in un, uh, in all areas of the region. So we will be able to discern as a result of this work which areas have the combination of very high heat, very low coping capacity, and very high health sensitivity of populations that live in specific parts of an area. And for example, when the heat dome came through in 2021, I had predicted in 2014 exactly where the people who uh, were exposed to multiple days of above 100 degree or 110 degree temperature, where they were going to be the greatest number of fatalities. And that's exactly what ended up happening. It's not rocket science to identify a neighborhood once we know that it's hot, that there are other uh, factors that contribute to the likelihood of um, of, of grave health impacts. And so when we know that there's a specific neighborhood, for example, in the Portland metro area, we've really honed in on East Portland as being an area where the built environment combined with kind of uh, changes in development, combined with loss of green space, combined with community vulnerability, all converge to really um, create a landscape of precarity, landscape where people are going to likely suffer from extreme heat waves. And um, so it really does allow policymakers in that sense to do, take proactive measures and what I've been calling for kind of develop heat action plans um, so that we know who uh, is responsible for what action, what the process is for community engagement, how we can do that respectfully, how we can open cooling centers, for example, um, in places where communities can be served much more effectively um, and that we can kind of distribute heat pumps and other cooling mechanical systems where we can put trees into the ground to cool those neighborhoods. So we can really do that work much more effectively so that temperatures can stay uh, manageable and, and not impact our health as severely. Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk about a couple of those things that you just mentioned. Uh, uh, so ACs, air conditioners, and uh, heat pumps uh, are helping people uh, cool down. In the past, uh, many people in the Pacific Northwest didn't have uh, ACs or heat pumps. And you know, after the uh, heat dome, uh, people went out and, and bought them in droves. And uh, uh, you know, those who could afford one, and then also the state and uh, the city of Portland uh, try to have programs to help people uh, who can't afford to buy them uh, to, to buy some of those units. So we're seeing more people uh, uh, who, who actually have ACs and heat pumps at home. Um, but it's only been a few years and, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of an emerging thing. But, and we still don't really know how people use these units. Um, you know, we know that people supposedly use them to cool down when it gets hot, but it's, it's a little more complicated. Um, and so I, I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about how our behavior has changed 
um, in terms of how we use cooling? Um, do these units actually provide relief from heat? And also what they cost us in terms of energy use, utility uh, costs, and any other impacts? Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan for getting people safe during these extreme events. Um, we really need to find all the possible avenues for reducing exposure to extreme heat. And um, we know from the American Southwest and South in general that air conditioning units and heat pumps are kind of the major go-to for uh, cooling in, in ter- inside homes. Uh, places around the world use the similar technology um, uh, and to, to cool residences and, and, and offices and grocery stores, etc. Um, one of the things that uh, is done is that w- money is freed up in order to be able to provide uh, a subsidy of sorts to re- to residences who may not be able to afford these heat pumps and these expensive mechanical cooling systems. And so you get a free air conditioning unit or a heat pump and you get it installed. And the idea is that you can turn it on and it's ready to go. There are a lot of unknowns about this. We don't know right now how uh, that's affecting a resident's utility bill. We don't know whether they're using it or not. We don't know whether the the um, the grid itself, like the electrical grid that supports these very energy intensive uh, mechanical cooling systems is going to be able to handle the level of demand that is now in uh, that is now in a particular area. Our infrastructure grid is relatively old. And we have in my in the last decade, we have tripled the amount of air conditioning units in the Portland metro region, for example. And that has really uh, grave implications for the ability for a, a, a grid that wasn't designed, an electrical grid that wasn't designed for this level of demand to suddenly be brought online. And so right. um, that, that is a much larger implication. And we just saw a study come out of um, Georgia that compared Atlanta and Phoenix and Detroit. And it showed that if Phoenix's electrical grid goes down, emergency rooms wouldn't have enough beds to be able to accommodate the number of impacts that Uh, are going to occur in the Phoenix area. And that is a very likely scenario that we would see here as well, in that Mm -hmm. we, many of us are not acclimated to the level of heat that we're starting to see. And Mm -hmm. it would mean a pretty rapid emergency um, if, if we were to see an electrical grid go down during a three, five, seven day heat wave. Right. Right. Yeah. That would be pretty devastating. Yeah. Um, one of the uh, another recent study that came out um, in April uh, looked at uh, cooling in affordable public housing, yeah. and uh, it was done with Home Forward, which is a, a public housing provider in the Portland area. And this study was really interesting because it looked at a population that was especially impacted in the heat dome. Uh, many, uh, many of the people who died. Um, were uh, residents of public housing. But uh, some of the conclusions of the study were kind of counterintuitive, um, which is that it, it, it found that uh, having air conditioning installed uh, didn't necessarily significantly decrease indoor temperatures for the people who got these new AC units. Why is that? And, and what did it sort of tell us uh, about the way that people use these? Yeah, there's really two things that emerge from that study that I can uh, discern. The first is that um, we don't know what AC use 
Uh, well, you don't know what drives AC use. Some people turn on an AC when the temperature breaks 70 degrees or 75 degrees, which I consider a really comfortable temperature. But for others, especially those with pre-existing health conditions, those temperatures get really hot. And, um, and in other cases, people turn on the AC when it only hits above 95 or 100. And in my household, I know our family is uh, kind of more on the 95 scale than on the 75 scale. And so mm-hmm. we have very different varying levels of comfort in our homes. And that's broken out by gen, I mean, different, you know, gender, it's broken out by um, income, like running an AC often costs more money. And so folks who can't, right. are deciding between, you know, a meal on the table or staying cool overnight, there's trade-offs there that folks are making. So there's many factors that go into whether you turn on an AC or not. Um, and so that may drive some of the results here. The other is that these mechanical systems, they can only cool indoor temperatures so much. If you have a very porous environment, you have a house that where outside air can come in really easily and the AC is running full blast, it doesn't really matter how much AC you're pushing. That air is constantly getting replenished with warmer air and the AC Mm -hmm. is working extra hard. And we know that AC units also break and malfunction a lot, even relatively newer ones. And that leads to kind of suddenly thinking you have a cool environment and then not having that and not having anybody to be able to help you fix it either in a short term. So um, we, we saw that, and we also saw that several com- several residences, uh, the study pointed to several residences that were um, using a variety of different techniques like indoor cooling fans and, and water baths and, and, and awnings and pulling up, pu- uh, putting uh, shades on windows and opening windows at night and really using a variety of different non-AC strategies to be able to cool the indoor environment and then um, seeing that those strategies were often having the same effect as having an AC on all the time. And that so the study mm-hmm. really pointed to the fact that you know AC is one approach that we can use, but they do it does have its limits and it might go out. And the other is that there are tactics that we can use just to keep our house cool um, that might also be a supportive environment. Uh, I understand that that study is going to continue this year because there were several unanswered questions and hypotheses that emerged, that the study is going to expand into the next year to be able to really get at some of those questions of AC versus non-AC, as well as green space around buildings and kind of really getting at coping strategies that individual uh, public housing residents have. Yeah, uh, thank you for explaining that study. And I think uh, one thing that's really noteworthy, too, is that, uh, you know, one of the thoughts in this study was that people perhaps stopped using some of these techniques that they had developed in the past to cope with heat because they suddenly had an air conditioner that they thought would solve their troubles. And so I think that's really important for all of us uh, to keep in mind as we try to protect ourselves from heat is that, you know, we have these devices that are not perfect, that uh, can fail, and we can't be overly reliant on them. We have to continue with our other strategies, you know, putting down 
the, the curtains and closing our uh, windows in the morning. I remember um, I moved from Portland to uh, the Central Valley in California, and it gets very hot there, about 110, 120 degrees. And I learned very fast by watching, uh, you know, my friends and colleagues who lived there for a long time, uh, what strategies they use. And they did that every single morning. You know, they put down their curtains. It was six in the morning. Yep closed their windows, you know, pretty much like made the, the house airtight. Um, and then, you know, when uh, when and if the temperatures did cool down at night, then they could open things up. But um, they, they used those strategies concurrent with using an AC in the house. So right. um, I think it's so important to use both. And, and it's easy to forget when you get a device that it, it's not enough. Right. Right. And it, it may not be enough. And it, and maybe part of it is too, like that in, in addition to providing people air conditioners or, you know, suggesting that people get air conditioners or heat pumps, there needs to be some sort of a education strategy of like, how do we cope with this? Uh, and how do we use these machines in an effective way? Um, in addition to using these other uh, techniques? Yeah, yeah. And, and really, these techniques are um, we, we've seen folks do energy audits in homes. So people come in and they do a blower test and they figure out how sealed your home is for energy. But we don't have anything of a heat audit of our home yet. And I'd love to see a little more effort going into like, we can actually go into, I can go into any house now and say, here are five, seven, 12 things you can do to keep temperatures five, 10, 15 degrees lower during a heat wave. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really emerging as a science now and we're getting much better uh higher resolution data as a result of these campaigns and a result of these uh projects like the uh, uh home forward uh portland bureau of emergency management project and in, in public housing we're getting much more granular data to know what works and what doesn't work and that will only help mm -hmm. enrich the way in which we respond to ever increasing temperatures yeah. And you mentioned these uh, home audits and you mentioned before uh, some homes being more porous, uh, meaning yeah. they're basically uh, old and, uh, you know, uh, not well built. Uh, and, and, and so there's a big difference in how a house is built uh, and, and how temperature impacts that house, um, which is a good segue to uh, uh, asking you about uh, what the city of Portland is doing in terms of uh, thinking about uh, indoor temperatures and how to perhaps nudge uh, developers uh, to develop a strategy that would uh, basically mandate that temperatures are able to stay below a certain uh, level inside the, ho the home. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's a few cities around the country that have um, created this, what are called maximum threshold temperatures. And let me get to that in one second, but put a context piece here about we, every, there's every city pretty much in the country has a requirement that every habitable space, meaning any space in a residence that people spend time has to be able to get up to a temperature of 65 degrees Fahrenheit. So that means it's a comfortable space to actually be in. There has to be some kind of equipment, some means, whether fireplace or equipment largely, uh, like a heater that would allow that res that specific space to get up to 65. And so that is in code. What we don't have, however, is anything that describes what a resident, what a unit cannot go above. And so that is that maximum 
temperature threshold. And again, we're still figuring out kind of how hot do residences get. After the 95 heat wave in Chicago, people, uh, folks were right in those residences and, and they were measuring bodies as they were being taken out of some of these apartment uh, and, and buildings. And they were finding these bodies were 140 degrees Fahrenheit. And wow. as a result, we really didn't know how hot a residence can get. And temperature goes up very slowly. So the resident themselves doesn't know that temperatures are going up in the house, even though they're starting to, their body's reacting by profusely sweating, they're getting dizzy, but yet they, a lot of folks just don't know um, and don't um, have the uh, response to that kind of impact because of neighborhood conditions, because of historical um, and uh, conditions, because of their perspective. And so what Portland is trying to do is ensure that there's a maximum threshold. And what it really falls around is about 85 degrees. That is um, where the body is. Once you go above 85, the body starts really kind of getting a little bit more, uh, not quite hyperthermia, but definitely getting to a point of overheating. And when we get above 90, it's a much higher likelihood that the body's starting to absorb that heat and organs are starting to feel that heat. And then when you go above that critical threshold of 98.6 Fahrenheit or 30, roughly 37 degrees Celsius, our bodies are going to completely overheat. And that's where we're really concerned about it. And so that maximum threshold, being pretty conservative about that. Also, I recognize that you know, regardless of setting that 85 degree threshold or whatever it ends up being, because that policy is not quite in place and there's still a lot right. of discussion about it, different bodies respond very differently to heat. And so what I would really uh, like to have is a lot more evidence and a lot more data about what it means, uh, uh, what it looks like indoors in different homes and how different um, ages, different age people, different demographics, different folks with different uh, health conditions are experiencing that heat. And my hunch is that threshold is actually going to be more like 80 or even 78 than it is going to be 85. And so that's where we get into some really interesting questions uh, around what that number is and what that means, because we really need to be designing these things for the most vulnerable in our in our community and those who are going to have a more difficult time coping with heat. And so let's keep that threshold relatively low so that we can find ways to ensure that those communities that do face some severe impacts are able to stay cool in their residences. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really critical because it's only going to get hotter um, in the future. So, you know, a house that we design today or that we build tomorrow is going to serve someone for several decades. That's right. Um, and, and has to be able to sustain that rise in the heat. Right. Um, so, you know, and the way that developers uh, it can uh, deal with this is obviously, you know, installing uh, cooling systems indoors or using different types of materials uh, to build the homes. Uh, but uh, one way that we can also deal with lowering temperatures in these neighborhoods, as we talked at the very beginning, is trees. Mm. Uh, and this is kind of a non-brainer maybe, uh, but uh, at the same time, it seems to be kind of a, an emerging, you know, emerging uh a science that uh, trees can really help us mitigate heat and that, you know, they are uh, just like the temperatures uh, uh, around the city 
tree canopy isn't distributed equally around the city. So there's uh, some areas that have a lot more trees and others have less. Uh, and, you know, we've been trying to plant some trees. Uh, it's been kind of going slow, uh, but uh, it, it seems like we now have a, a, an opportunity uh, to plant a lot more uh partly because there's more uh, focus on trees and their usefulness in combating heat, but also because we are about to get a large influx of money from the Inflation Reduction Act. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about uh, this uh, this money that's coming specifically for tree planting and how this tree planting is different uh, than it used to be in the past. Yeah, so for uh, better or for worse, I have a lot of um, work that our lab and our group has done around uh, trees and green space in, 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 you know, in cities and regions and states. And um, we've been really talking about the, why we're seeing differences in heat. Um, and it, a lot of times when we describe those temperature differences of 15, 20, sometimes even 25 degrees Fahrenheit difference between neighborhoods, the immediate response I hear from communities is like, oh, we need to shade those places. Let's get some shade here. And we know that from historic planning processes and, and programs that some neighborhoods were disinvested and didn't get green space, didn't get trees. And so um, that has really led to what we call uh, um, tree inequities across a region. So there's some communities that really benefit from that shade and other communities that couldn't uh, that never see that shade or never experience that shade. Um, and so what we're, what this, uh, inflation reduction act, for example, has, uh, $1.5 billion slated for tree canopy programs across the country. And those tree canopy programs are, um, kind of focused on communities that are lower income communities that are historically kind of disinvested in, and they called in the official language, the dis disadvantaged communities, and the idea is to get trees into the ground uh, in these areas. And that combined with Oregon's recent uh, legislative passage of the Trees Act that shores up additional funding for co doing community tree projects, this scrappy little field of urban forestry has now more resources than it's ever seen in the past. And it really means that we ha are at a moment of really reckoning with how are we going to ensure that these investments are going to uh, protect those most vulnerable and keep those neighborhoods cooler as we see temperatures increasing. And and we have a lot of science on on this. We know that you know trees are helpful in some instances, but the moniker goes right tree, right place, and right you know and and if we have a tree that doesn't do well, for example, in hotter climates, and we're putting it into an industrial parking lot where there's a really amplified climates, that tree is going to likely die within a year or two. Whereas if we put a drought tolerant tree where we know that that could really uh, provide shade over the long term, that would be a more effective investment, more uh, bang for your buck, if you will. And so these are the kinds of questions that we're asking, like, what are the trees? Where can you plant them? The challenge, of course, is that some neighborhoods have been so paved over uh, back to this question of disinvestment, some neighborhoods have been so paved over over decades that you'll have to tear up concrete and to get a tree in. And so mm -hmm. the whole question of like, what do you do? Well, how do we do that in an effective way to get uh, a tree in? And how do we create a, a, a vibrant, verdant urban forest in, in these communities around the state? That's a question that each community is going to have to figure out on their own. And that's 
um, it's it's uh, sometimes even more complicated than rocket science because you're really mm-hmm. having to not only care, get um, uh, community buy-in and kind of engage a community around this because a lot of places in the state, uh, the adjacent property owner is responsible for taking care of a tree in the parking right. strip, which is the space between the sidewalk and the road. And so you plan, if a city goes in and plants a tree and says, now you're going to have to pay money to take care of any branches that fall, any pruning of that tree, watering of that tree, et cetera, it creates a very kind of vicious cycle where you're kind of burdening a neighborhood or a community or a household with more uh, responsibility and more financial burden than um, a city being able to take care of it. So I guess what I get to with a lot of these programs is it has to be um, kind of a, a mutually beneficial um, project where when you're planting a tree, there is a plan in place for taking care of it in perpetuity. And um, that there's many models for that as well. And um, it's it's really something that we, we're going to have to try to couple with all of these tree projects that will appear around the state. And my hope is that we're really thoughtful about it. We're engaging communities around it and we're really finding the right tree, right place and um, uh, doing that over time and very systematically. There's some great groups, uh, community-based organizations that are actively working in this space. And uh, I really see the communities have uh, trust these organizations uh, to be able to really administer the programs. And I think that's a very promising outlook for uh, cooling neighborhoods and kind of absorbing ground, absorbing stormwater during the rainy season, cooling neighborhoods in the hot season, and cleaning the air as well. And we get all of that for free once we let a tree mature in place. Yeah, it sounds fantastic, and it sounds like it's going to be a great investment in the in the communities. I think the perhaps one thing our listeners are asking uh, themselves is that you know it takes time for a tree to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it takes a time for some of these initiatives to uh, have the impacts that they can actually uh, lower the the heat in a neighborhood or inside the home. And so I want to end uh, our program today with just a quick uh, piece of advice to our uh, listeners, uh, you know, for those who don't live in a tree neighborhood and can't, uh, uh, you know, maybe hide in a tree forest, what are sort of the top three uh, things that you can do to stay cooler? Yeah, top three things you can do to stay cooler. Um, The first thing is just really finding the coolest place around you. So it might be uh, as simple as a basement. It might be kind of as simple as an, uh, the north side of the residence that you're living. Um, it might, And if you don't have those, it might be a community room that you have in your apartment building. Uh, we're starting to see an uptick in the idea of resilience hubs, these little um, rooms or spaces in Um, multifamily residential or even single family residential neighborhoods where you can go to get cool. And so I don't think we've quite gotten there yet um, in terms of having those available, but just really finding a cool space in your environment. I'd say a really second big thing is as simple as it sounds, very important is getting to know your neighbors. Um, We often run into the same challenge when it comes to an extreme event is that people are so isolated. They're either scared of their neighborhood or not Uh, familiar with it. And so they don't engage in uh, conversations. And often your uh, immediate 
the folks immediately surrounding you are the folks that can really help you with uh, things. And I know that the human heart is often really looking for supporting the community, supporting people that are in need. And um, it, not, it it's something that's such a simple thing and you can do it through a block party, you know, or something like that where neighbors come out. Uh, I'm actually organizing one in my neighborhood um, for this September so that we can all get out and start to get to know each other and have that conversation, especially after several years of this pandemic and becoming more yeah. isolated. And I think the third thing that I keep hearing from folks is there are a lot of community resources around heat. There are public health agencies like this heat mapping project will accelerate the amount of resources available. So you can actually get trees planted for free uh, in your parking strip, in your yard. You can get air conditioning or heat pumps if you're qualifying. You can you can uh, really take advantage of cooling centers if you don't have another place to go. There's a tremendous amount of um, resources that are materializing uh, both physically and virtually to be able to uh, support communities in times of need. So uh, while the federal government, uh, federal emergency management agency still doesn't recognize heat as a, uh, a natural hazard, local agencies and, and cities and counties and states are seeing it as a natural hazard and, and are putting enormous amount of effort into this right now because we're seeing increases in um, impacts happen not only in infrastructure, but also in human health. So having a, um, having a direct link to all the resources that are around you, including what the state and city and region and state uh, and, and city would provide, your neighbors, as well as your own residents and finding ways to keep that cool. Absolutely. And we encourage everyone to uh, check out those resources. Um, Vivek, it's been a fascinating and really important conversation. Uh, we're going to be following this topic closely in future stories in the Oregonian and online at OregonLive.com. Uh, and uh, thank you so much, everybody, for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. If you like this show, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us find uh, the show. And please tell a friend. Uh, the best way to support our journalism and stories like this is with a subscription to OregonLife.com. You can do that at OregonLife.com slash pod support. Until next time, thank you.